Welcome to Man Reads Monday. I am Aaron Ventura. He is Jacob Rush. Let's get to work. Jacob, what are we working through today? Today we are in chapter two of C.R. Wiley's Man of the House, and it is entitled One Flesh. One Flesh. So back in chapter one and in the introduction, we talked a little bit about covenants, and now we are going to explore the covenant of marriage. Um, and before we dive into this, uh, can you tell people a little bit about the Facebook group we got going, Who's who that's for and what the point of that is? Yeah, so one of the things we want this podcast to be really is a resource, right? Uh, and not simply just us, you know, saying we have it all together and this is our wisdom, right? A bunch of, well, <laughs> what are you, 30? Yeah. 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 So, uh, but really inviting men together on the common journey of wisdom and then applying that wisdom to our lives. So we've got a, a, a Facebook group that is going to follow along this podcast. And so obviously right now we're in Men of the House, but hopefully continue going on as we hit other books. And yeah, really a place for discussion and questions you may have, ways that you're trying to apply this and ways that we could pray for one another to actually make this happen. So. Yeah. So it should be one of those groups that doesn't, it's not like a group where we're going to be arguing about pedo baptism and stuff like that. It's mainly a, a just a, like a reading group to talk about things that you found helpful, questions you had about the book. And uh, especially if we're able to interview C.R. Wiley, we could, you know, field some of the questions from that group to ask him later on. So yeah, hopefully it, it can be a place, especially for networking. And I think of a book like this that is all about establishing a productive household, that's going to look really, really different depending yeah. on what your skill set is, where you live, your stage in life. And so I'm actually really interested to hear from some of the guys in this group who maybe have read this book already or who are just trying to think through, yeah, what what does a productive household look like? Uh, what does it look like for my wife and I to work together, to have this common orbit uh, mm -hmm. in which we are we are each contributing to the little uh, mini fractal of society? Uh, but I'm jumping ahead. And if you don't know what a mini fractal, yeah, we're going to talk about read, yeah. fractals. And also, have you are you familiar with Mike Bull at all? Yeah, because yeah, Mike yeah. Bull loves fractals. Oh, so, so shout out to, to <laughs> Mike Bull. Okay, so let's get into uh, chapter two, and he's going to begin by talking about poetry and metaphors. And it's a really fascinating philosophical question of where can meaning be found? Mm. Uh, you have the, you know, radical relativism and post-modernity uh, where uh, we're playing word games and they're really, meaning is whatever you make it. Right. Everything is metaphor or nothing is metaphor mm. or truth is only brute factuality. Uh, so what were your takeaways from uh, kind of the setup here in chapter two? I really appreciated it as sort of a way to begin because he essentially starts with that idea of the one flesh and uses it to build up into these other things, right? So he talks about, okay, what does it mean to become one flesh? Yeah. Because right away, um, I think if you're interpreting a metaphor properly, it's going to cut out the alternatives, right? Mm -hmm. So he gives the example right at the beginning of the lady who uh, gets married to a tree Yep. Right, And he says, just by the very meaning of the word one flesh, or the, the phrase one flesh, you can't become that with a tree. Yeah. And so it seems silly, right, maybe to, to use it that way, but it highlights again that idea that we've lost, which is that poetry actually has meaning. Mm -hmm. You can't just, words have meaning. You can't just rearrange things in a sentence and expect it to mean the same thing. Yeah. So when we talk about, okay, recovering covenants, recovering marriage, um, 
uh, the scriptures in particular and the way that God talks about it should be of incredible importance to us. Like yeah. that's going to give us the framework and the imaginative capacity to actually fill it out in our own lives. Yeah. He says in the little side section, the philosopher, he says, uh, Every tree is a metaphor, and even people are fantastically metaphorical. They are images of God. And uh, one thing that I've found helpful is just thinking about every person is a metaphor for what God is like. That, that's what it means to be an image. It's uh, trying to explain by analogy what God is like. If you're trying to explain to a child certain concepts that are hard to understand, you try to tell stories. You try to tell allegories, which are extended metaphors. You you teach morals, you mm -hmm. teach truth in, you know, these little funny storybooks using animals when, you know, kids are growing up. And uh, although that might seem kind of childish, I mean, that's just a nature of teaching truth in an easy to understand way. And as we grow in maturity, we don't leave metaphors behind. We understand more deeply these metaphors that even Paul is wondering at in Ephesians 5, marriage is the highest metaphor of all, perhaps. It is the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of Christ's love for the church. And marriage is, is that lived out metaphor that both gives you more insight into what marriage is and to what the gospel is. Uh, so he goes in and says, all right, our culture's inability to read metaphors has turned marriage into this thing that is totally relative. He says on page 11, marriage today seems to be whatever you want it to be. And that's because we've disconnected it from the biblical metaphor that we find in Genesis. That's where we get this kind of two shall become one flesh. And then it gets expanded uh, later on in the New Testament. And he says, um, if people are going to get it, if they are going to understand marriage and, and not treat it simply as some uh, con the, the contract that the guy's like, yeah, it's just a piece of paper. Who cares right. about it? And he says, if people are going to uh, be able to understand it, they need to get a better perspective. And then he gives us a metaphor of this ladder. He says, oh, I've got this ladder that will give us a better angle. And then we're going to start climbing the rungs on this ladder. So he's using a metaphor to teach another metaphor. He's going, you yeah, know. Meta on us. Yeah, meta here. <laughs> Um, and he also, on the side, gives this uh, contrast between Plato and in the symposium, which I have not read, um, and the Genesis account of sex, uh, playing with this metaphor of sex as a reunion. And uh, there's kind of this this idea that uh, in Plato, he says, sex is antisocial, a turning away from society, while in the Bible, it is the genesis of society. And that's going to set up this later idea of rooting marriage, not merely in our feelings or emotional intimacy, he's going to say, but in actually constituting a miniature cosmos, a miniature polis or a miniature city. That's where, uh, that's what that word polis means. So uh, talking about this bottom rung of one flesh, he says, this is simply the sexual union. So what does one flesh mean? What does this metaphor mean? Well, basically it's, it's sex. And it's going to result in a child. So a child is the result of this one flesh union. And he says, but that's still only the first rung of the ladder. Before we keep going, do you have any comments on uh, kind of this first rung here? Yeah. So uh, again, this just highlights what you were just mentioning about the power, the uh, 
the potency of the metaphor because metaphor is never yeah, it's never less than the truth but it can be more than yeah so that's why he gives the example of the latter so we um, it gives us very clearly defined sort of a rubric and we're gonna start here and then we're gonna progress so what does one flesh mean well, what does it sound like one yeah and 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 man woman one and again right there that cuts out what he is what we've already talked about it cuts out homosexuality you cannot become one flesh or at least not in any satisfying way right. with another man nor could you with a tree or yeah. um in one sense it's like the parts don't fit yeah it's it's like the most basic thing that when every time you plug your uh, charger into the wall. <laughs> it's like there's a male side and there's a female side. There's right. a, a receptacle and a whatever would be the opposite of a, <laughs> a receiver. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, that's what they call it. Yeah. That's what it's called, right? It's the male and the female like ports or angles, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's just really showing that we really need to spend more time in a Home Depot. I think. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's like a, a child can refute homosexuality by simply saying the parts don't fit. Right. Like that—that that is a five-year-old argument, but it's sound, mm -hmm. right? It—it—it uh, it speaks about the way reality is, mm -hmm. and Scripture it gives you the fullness of what actually makes sense of what our natures are and what our natures are meant to be. And and the fruit of it is what he says, right? The fact that it issues into something else. Yeah. Right. You actually have a child. You cannot have a child by homosexual relationship yep. or a non-human, a bestiality sort of relationship. Right. That's not a thing. Yep. He has this uh, kind of side section with the curmudgeon on dinks. Uh, and a dink is someone, or it's, it's a couple, uh, dual income, no kids. And he says, um, they used to be considered selfish. In those days, you only found them in big cities. Hmm. Now they're everywhere. Since they've become the new normal, the name has disappeared. And you think, yeah, dinks is one of those kind of pejorative terms that was meant to be pejorative, to shame. encourage... Yeah. yeah, a healthy shame, right? Yeah, to, to shame them. And he said... They used to be considered selfish, and, and yeah, in common uh, society that might have once upon a time they were. Mm -hmm. But what they really are is short-sighted. So I, I still think, yes, they are selfish, they can be selfish, but he says what they really are is short-sighted. They tend to think that children are the mistake that people make when they fail to plan ahead. The builders of real houses know better. They agree with every culture around the world through all of history till five minutes or so ago. That children aren't the result of bad planning. They are the plan. Wow. I think this is enormously profound to show how, how our thinking has been corrupted mm. by egalitarianism, by feminism, by selfishness. Mm -hmm. There's even ways where, and I don't, you know, don't mean to, but as we're looking at the truth, we're going to offend even people within our own circles, right? There are even ways where in the church, um, I, I've never really liked the question, how many kids do you want, right? Or how many kids are you planning to have? Um, I get it to a certain, there's a certain practicality to that, and I'm not saying that that's like, you should never set, you know, set a cap or there's like, um, maybe we can't sustain 12 kids. But again, the, it, I think it highlights that frame of mind that's changed mm -hmm. from thinking that they're the plan to how, how can we accommodate them in our life? In our life, how are we yeah. going to accommodate these, these inconveniences, it seems to me, yeah. as opposed to, no, 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 they are plan A. Yeah. And, and my life, in a certain extent, is going to be accommodated. Obviously, I'm the parent, 
well, I'm not, but I would be, yeah. um, is it going to be accommodated to them? Yeah. Another way of thinking about it is asking the question in these terms is like, how big do, do you want your army to be? Yeah. And, and so you'd want to say a big army doesn't necessarily guarantee victory. You need a skilled army. But the more skilled and the bigger the army is, the better. So all things being equal, uh, you know, righteous, godly, you know, fear of the Lord in them, more is better. Hmm. Now, what you don't want is high quantity and low quality. You don't want a bunch of uh, bar yeah, barbarians that don't know how to follow orders. But in general, you want to have a bigger army. And it says in scripture, uh, you know, it would be a glory for you if your sons stand with you in the gates. The, uh, the, the children are the arrows in the quiver. It's that military right. kind of metaphor. And they're there for, for warfare. They're there to, to build uh, and be a part of the kingdom of God. Mm. So he goes on to talk about uh, emotional intimacy, and he says, emotional intimacy is a wonderful thing, but is that solid enough to build a house upon? If divorce, if divorce rates and the growth of single motherhood indicate anything, no, probably not. Feelings come and go. Sometimes you don't feel like being intimate or even talking to your mate. Sometimes you just feel like walking out. People used to stay together for the kids, but that calls for self-denial. And that doesn't feel good. So if you want your household to last longer than many do these days, one flesh will need to refer to something more than that loving feeling. Our ancestors knew this. That's why they turned to politics. So talking about this one flesh metaphor, he says, yes, it does mean sex. That's the first rung of the ladder, but let's keep climbing up, up it. And, and often, you know, sex is going to create and be uh, the result of, yeah, deep emotional intimacy uh, in most cases. Uh, but also you need something stronger to hold this one flesh together, to build upon it. And he says, our ancestors turned to politics. Ooh. And this is kind of an interesting move here. What did you think of uh, this section? Yeah, I think one, he does a little bit of groundwork at, at clearing away maybe possible misconceptions you may have, right? Yeah. He says, you know, <laughs> you may think politics is immoral. Politics is that the topic you want to avoid at the Thanksgiving table with the, yeah. you know, the... Uncle. One flesh means you both vote Republican or you both <laughs> vote Democrat. Right, or you, you're the birthday party, maybe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> vote for Kanye. Yep. Um, and he says, no, no, no. I'm talking about it in the old sort of classical Greek sense of yep. polis, yep. which is where we translate like English city. So Minneapolis is... I don't know what many is, but uh, <laughs> it's a city of many. Um, and he says, so we're talking about city, but really we're a political community in the sense of a body, a yep. body politic, yep. right? In the sort of traditional sense, which is, a sh again, maybe an unexpected move. Um, but to your point, he's trying to say, when we're talking about one flesh, we're not simply just talking about the, the base physical union. We're talking about the, in one sense, the metaphysical union, the, the household, the structure, the, um, the way that we relate to one another, and then how we see our place in relation to the rest of society. Yeah, it reminds me of the Three Little Pigs story when he said, you know, the Three Little Pigs story teaches you about a fourth house, and he says it's the brotherhood of the pigs. And it, that is that metaphysical brotherhood that, that we have. And here you're talking about a physical body, the one flesh Union that is sex, but you also have this 
one flesh body politic, this kind of metaphysical body that constitutes your kind of new roles as husband and wife. And he's going to say a husband and wife uh, on page 14, a husband and wife are one flesh because they form the most basic political community and they reflect Christ and his body, the church. And he says, did you want to uh, say well, something like that? I, we could just go, in, obviously, in so many rabbit trails about this, but that is, I think, really significant, especially in a in our... This is where it does have relevance to our modern political kind of ideology today because our society is so individualistic mm-hmm. as opposed to, uh, I don't know what you call... Uh, communalistic is, you know, <laughs> has a bad ring to it, uh, but as opposed to thinking hierarchically or in um, household type structure yeah um you know even if even if you read someone like Locke or rousseau the basic building block of a society is the individual mm-hmm. and so what what is a society on their account well it's just a bunch of individuals who have their rights and they have to learn to get along with one another so they come yeah. together and they form a government and they preserve their right to vote or defend their property mm-hmm. and obviously those rights are, are good but there's a problem if the most basic building block is the individual. Yeah. It comes down to this uh, kind of basic philosophical problem of the one and the many, and which has primacy over the other one. And we would want to say the only way to resolve that is with a, a Trinitarian God in whom uh, you know, is both right. one and many and create, you know, we worship that God and therefore we know how to order things. So we know that we are to love our neighbor, but we love God first. And unless, and if you don't love God first, you won't actually be able to love your mm. wife or your children correctly. And so proper worship of the one of the triune right. God is the only way you can then have a society that, that doesn't fall into the pit of utopian communism, which is impossible with sinful men, or the hyper-individualism that, that you just mentioned. Right. And he, he talks uh, then about how some people have tried to solve this problem of how do you even have a stable society? And he says, of course, Plato knew all about households, but they made him uneasy. And he believed they could undermine the unity of his ideal city, that's that utopian idea, uh, with nepotism and other forms of corruption. They might even pull it apart. So he's trying to figure out how, uh, you know, is the household a good thing? Or is it going to actually become a rival to what he wants to build? I think this is a perfect kind of example of what the problem is right now in our community, in episode one, we talked about the, or in, in chapter one, we talked about these other shelters right. that have been built up. And in many ways, those shelters exist because we took the individualistic route. Instead of treating uh, uh, society as groups of households mm. and encouraging households to do the productive work, we outsourced it mm. to uh, bureaucracy, to social services right. and treated everyone as individuals which undermined the whole structure uh, of the household and now we ended up where we're at and the irony even there too is that you end up with household rule anyway so because who do you have at the top of those now corrupt outsources an individual who's got a lot of power yeah right and so it, it, it's sort of the irony of it is when you try to get rid of 
you know, you try to suppress nature. You try to you push it down because yeah. you you don't like how God made the world. You're just going to get it popping back up. You're going to have a tyrannical household, exactly. Essentially, and and right now the tyrannical household um, in our country is the state. One of the ways you could say it is hierarchy is an inescapable con concept. Yeah. And what uh, socialism, communism, even what you see some of the kind of Black Lives Matter or some of these egalitarian movements, they they are trying to force reality to fit into a mold that it will never fit into because men are different than women. It's like if you just deny that men are different than women, you're going to have all sorts of problems when with your anthropology and how you govern society. Uh, we continue on and he has this kind of scary uh, section on the side about the philosopher, houses, states, and loyalty, where he talks about one of the ways you could uh, get rid of this household structure where everyone, is, everything is communal, including the children. And he's like, okay, with, with paternity, uh, you could just have uh, the men, you know, having sex with, you know, all right. the women, right? It's just like, there is no marriage. It's just a shared... Right. Men, women have sex with each other. But what about maternity, right? A mother's bond with her child is a strong bond. How would you break that up? And he says the problem of maternity is a little tougher to deal with. But in Plato, um, it is solved by blindfolding women and removing their children from them right after birth. Children are then raised in common in what looks very much like the daycares and public schools we know today. Ouch. And it's like that is kind of a scary sentence where he talks about a woman's child being removed from her right at birth. And you think, man, that's like the most horrible thing you could do. And then he says, you know, it's kind of like our daycares and our public public schools today. Now we voluntarily right. give our children up to be raised in this kind of commune. Right. And I was reading uh, maybe a month or so ago the Black Lives Matter their kind website. of statement yeah. of faith. And this is one of their, like, stated goals <laughs> is undermining the pa the patriarchal the norm. Heteronormatives. Yeah. Um, nuclear family. Yeah. yeah. They, they want to destable the nuclear family and replace it with essentially this kind of uh, communal or tribal <laughs> upbringing, which is... We would just say, that's pagan, yeah. right? It, that is anti-Christian. He, cl he closes this with, I think, one of the most, like, this is just such a fire quote here, when he talks about roles within marriage. So, remember the problem. We're talking about what can you build a, a household on, and it can't just be emotional intimacy. It needs to be something stronger than that. And his, his answer to that is, okay, what is stronger than emotional intimacy? Well, it's being caught up in something bigger than yourself. It's losing your kind of uh, individual, you being a self-contained cosmos and saying, no, you are not. You are going to actually find, uh, find yourself when you lose yourself. Sounds yeah. kind of like what Jesus says. So in marriage, you are abandoning being the center of the world and then entering into a common orbit with your spouse. Mm. And you're going to then take on, along with that, you're gonna take on new responsibilities, new roles. Mm. And he's like, well, a lot of people are going to kick against this idea that there is, that a husband has a different role than, than mm. the wife. And then he says this, modern people resist this idea in a household. 
though they accept it with perfect ease when we speak of the workplace. <laughs> so he's referring to authority, hierarchy, and roles in a, in a marriage or in a household. He says people resist this, but they're totally fine with it when they're in the workplace. Of course, there must be hierarchy at work. That is where we get important things accomplished. The fact that people expect perfect equality in the home is evidence that they really don't think anything productive happens there. One purpose of this book is to show how badly that idea is mistaken. Hmm. I think that is an indictment yeah. on how a lot of people treat marriage and uh, that's the dinks thing, that's the women pursuing a career and uh, kind of scoffing at stay-at-home mothers as if there's there's working yeah. women and those are the ones who go out of the household right. and then there's like moms yep. who aren't working women because you know you know That's raising children job, isn't right. work right it's, yeah. it's like a walk in the park no but yeah, it's, yeah. it's super easy yeah and i think this is this is part of the lie uh that mm. is upon the church and our culture right, right now. This is the spirit of the age that we have to fight against, and that's what this book is hoping to demolish. Yeah, and, and even on the other side, we've talked a little bit about this too, but you've got this sort of um, radical reaction among unbelieving men, right? The MGTOW, the men going their own way, or the, uh, what is it? It's not Red Pill. Is it Red Pill? Yeah. Yeah, sort of the Red Pill movement, where um, men kind of recognize that, you know, the egalitarianism is spreading, and they also recognize there's a difference. And so they either are just like, I don't need a woman, right? Or I'm going to learn the tricks of the trade so I can sleep with as many women as I want. Or basically um, get the benefits of a sexual relationship without the actual... And, and it's, it's, the, it's just as bad of a temptation, right? right? Um, um, so, yeah, I, I think that's, that's interesting. As we're men studying this book, our, our temptations are going to be... Um, I, I can see a young man even in the church being tempted to sort of despair, right? Like, okay, well... The world's against me. Like no woman thinks this way, or at least no woman I know thinks this way. Yeah. What do I do? Yeah. Um, do I just give up, or you know, do I just date around? Like uh, immorality is an option, <laughs> or is it just like, eh, I'm just going to be single, right? And I'm just not going to pursue yeah. marriage. And we want to say no, like, um, like we talked about with Horn's book, like make yourself marriage material. Hold these things in front of your mind as where you're striving to, and and pray. Yeah. Ask the Lord to do a work. So that's chapter two of Man of the House, and we're going to keep going. We're going to talk about, I think, the economy of love yeah. in chapter three. Uh, so uh, keep on uh, reading with us, and um, if you have questions or comments on it, if you are a Christian and you're a man, you can do that in the Facebook group. Otherwise, you can uh, find both Jacob and I on Twitter or via email. Um, and until next time, what do people need to do? So they need to uh, get wisdom, and <laughs> they need to build a house. Okay. And find some love. Find some love. There it is. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> All right, peace.